Hello, podcast listeners. Today is a very special episode with Edward Knight, president at Andler. Ed brings over a multi-decade career in European banking and capital markets. He worked at Goldman Sachs for 14 years and was a partner in their equities division. Prior to that, Edward was executive director at Citi. He earned his bachelor's in modern languages from Durham University. In today's episode, we discuss venture capital and why investors should look into it. I want to welcome Ed to the show, and I want to welcome all our listeners to a very special episode. This podcast is sponsored by the Hidden Value Stocks newsletter. Published once a quarter, the Hidden Value Stocks newsletter contains at least two interviews with up-and-coming hedge fund managers and their top two favorite investment ideas. Each newsletter subscriber not only receives a detailed investment thesis on each idea, but we will also provide direct access to the fund's profile, as well as their quarterly updates. We are proud to report that the average annualized return of all 60 stocks profiled in hidden value stocks since inception is 27.9%, with an average holding period of 319 days. To download a 10-page teaser issue or sign up for a 5-day free trial, head over to hiddenvaluestocks.com. Podcast listeners can get 35% off the annual subscription price with discount code VIP. 19. Welcome to Value Talk with Raul. Just wanted to welcome all our listeners to a very special episode. I have Edward Knight, president of Antler, and Ed, welcome to the show. Great to see you. Thank you for having me. All right. Yeah, if we can just begin with your background and what led you to what you currently do today. Yeah, so um, I came from a sort of pretty traditional career in finance on Wall Street, um, first working for a British investment bank for 10 years, and then more recently, 15 years at Goldman Sachs, where I was a partner in the equities business. So capital markets, prime brokerage, derivatives, and then left that industry at the end of December 2018 to go into venture capital. Nice. And uh, yeah, you're the president of venture uh, of Handler uh, here. Just want to know what led you to venture capital and then also what is the overall objective of your firm? Sure. So um, I, I just think it's an incredible privilege to be all of us front row seats to a period of just enormous, enormous change. And so back in 2015, I had the opportunity, as in addition to my day job, to start up a disruptive tech practice at Goldman Sachs in Europe. And the way that we did that was that a former colleague of mine who runs Balderton Capital in London had offered us the opportunity to host six founders in the Goldman offices and then to invite 25 CIOs from great big asset managers and institutions to come in and hear these founders speak. Uh, one of the first founders was Will Shu from Deliveroo, which is the European version of a delivery hero and DoorDash. And he was a former investment banker working late nights and he'd get hungry. And his solution to that was to build Deliveroo. So he presented, and he presented in a really smooth and articulate fashion and was greeted by 25 blank faces. And within four years, he'd raised $500 million from Amazon. So this happens really very, very quickly, and it changed my thinking quite profoundly about where we were. So in addition to sort of building out that practice into um, what is now a two-day event, um, it seemed to me that there were four or so very, very visible truths, as I call them, 
which are a feature of life at the moment, uh, which all imply that things are going to look very differently in the next 25 years than they have done for the last 25 years. So first was that, um, you know, we're at the end of a 40-year interest rate cycle, which started really when we left the gold standard in the 1970s. And the entire financial services industry, as we know it today, has basically been built around that narrative. And that's over. If you look at the capital of most of the investment banks, uh, at least three quarters of it is in fixed income. And that's why they prospered, very simply put. And obviously, with interest rates where they are now, that journey has kind of come to its natural conclusion. Secondly, we've now had 12 years since the end of the crisis of extraordinary levels of quantitative easing or money printing by central banks for all the reasons that we know. But just consider for a second that there are 25% more dollars in circulation today than there were just 18 months ago. I mean, that is absolutely a draw-dropping concept to get your head around, but it basically means that the dollar value of our time, your time, my time is going down. Third truth was the observation that cloud computing is only 10 years old. So we're really just at the beginning of understanding that businesses can get built anywhere in the world for very modest upfront cost, but with the potential to reach enormous audiences. So we think that there are now 170 cities worldwide that can lay claim to hosting a unicorn. And one of the observations we often make is that, you know, where it took the airline industry 50 years to reach 50 million customers, it took Pokemon Go just 19 days. So the cloud has transformed everything. And then fourthly, and possibly, you know, most poignantly, is that for the first time in human history, the millennial generation are less well off than their parents were at the same age. They're graduating in record numbers because we've inflated university attendance so much in the last 30 years with record levels of debt. Uh, into real estate markets that are four times what they were in the mid-90s. So quite simply, what that means is that the things that most young people aspire to are quite literally off the menu for this generation. And that's driving enormous behavioral changes of, of choice uh, and, and demographic behavior. So we now know that 29% of US university graduates say that their number one career choice is to be a, a creator, which I think we can take as a proxy for innovation and venture. Um, Finance and law are still very prestigious locations, but they just don't hold a monopoly on talent in quite the same way that they used to because the wealth creation opportunity is not perceived as being there, it's perceived as being elsewhere. So I looked at those four truths, if you will, and, and you really, it's very difficult to argue with unless you've been living in the back of a cave, um, which implied to me that it's highly improbable that the next 25 years will look like the last 25 years, and that actually, where one generation generated prosperity through the financialization of the Western world, this generation is more likely to generate its prosperity through software. And so I decided to leave because it felt to me that these were enormous, enormous long cycle trends, uh, which are very difficult to detect day to day. But when you take a step back and look at what's happened in a six month period, look at the blockchain, look at DeFi, um, the change is enormous. And so, um, I took the decision that for the next part of my career, I just didn't want to spend any more time doing what I was doing, but actually spend my time fully concentrated on venture capital. Nice. And those four truths, um, that's what makes venture capital attractive to you today. Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, you know, there's, 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 a, there's another um, facet to this, which is, you know, for the last 40 years, which therefore brackets the working lives of most people who run big businesses, you know, we've seen falling interest rates and um, traditional asset allocation models in portfolios delivering seven or so percent returns every year. 
Um, and that's not going to be the case going forward. And so what you're seeing is increasingly big pools of capital, uh, pension plans, life insurance companies, private wealth platforms, following the lead that Harvard and Yale and other big university endowments actually set 20 years ago by investing into venture um, because they've understood the very outsized returns that are capable uh, of coming through here, particularly in a period when you know, the cloud is absolutely turbocharging most of these businesses when they lift off and when they succeed. So having an allocation to that strategy and that asset class has essentially become uh, much more uh, critical now, particularly with other parts of traditional asset allocation yielding such meager returns. Makes sense. And uh, yeah, that was going to be my follow-up question is why should uh, investors look into venture capital? I think so. I mean, um, I mean, my theory is that the whole world's going to end up being invested in venture capital because these themes are so big. They're going to touch everybody. So you think about AI, machine learning, genomics, blockchain, robotics, battery storage. There's not any of us that that's not going to touch in one way or another. Um, these are transformative technologies when you think about the ability to edit gene sequences to minimize the risk of exposure to a particular disease that one demographic is exposed to or you think about the entire reconfiguration of the auto industry because of battery storage capabilities uh, and energy and renewables, everybody's going to be affected by this. So for me, it's pretty compelling and it's pretty persuasive. There's a lot of education that needs to be undertaken here, but I think it won't be long before a broader audience of, of investors wake up to these opportunities here. Mm -hmm. And why venture capital over private equity? So, I mean, venture capital is a subset of private equity. So private equity, I guess, is anything that's not listed on the stock market. It normally takes two primary forms. One is buyout, uh, leveraged buyout, where, you, where, you, where you, you buy underperforming assets and improve their operating performance with leverage. Um, and that's been a fabulous industry for the last 30 years and you know, very famously recalled with, with barbarians at the gate and RGR Nabisco and KKR at the end of the 80s, which was at the time a, a cottage industry, which in the intervening 30-year period has become enormous with the likes of Blackstone and Carlyle and KKR and CVC. Um, the other subsector of private equity most common now is, is venture. And in fact, I kind of think that we're going to see consolidation in the venture capital industry in much the same way as we did the buyout industry, but it will probably happen in a compressed time frame because it's all tech enabled. Um, and again, so they're, they're two very different disciplines. One is buying underperforming assets and turning them around. Uh, in the case of buyout, in the case of venture, it's obviously about buying very, very fast growing, uh, rapidly scalable tech enabled uh, businesses. And what areas of venture capital uh, offer the best risk reward and what themes are the most top of mind for you currently? I, mean, I think we touched about this a little bit already. Um, you know, AI, machine learning, genomics, blockchain, battery storage, robotics. Um, I all think are sort of some of the very, very big themes, but some of them are you know very, very broad. So you know, think about what AI is going to do to the pharmaceutical industry because it's going to be so much more efficient to use AI rather than spend billions and billions of dollars a year on on R and D. Uh, you know, same thing with machine learning, same thing with genomics. It's going to dramatically transform the, the shape of, the, of these industries. Um, you know, think about the blockchain and what that's going to do for finance and applying for a mortgage or getting deeds done on a house or 
um, simply buying and, buying and sending currency or sending money to a loved one on a different continent, as, you know, as we're seeing in some reasonably desperate circumstances in Eastern Europe at the moment, you know, these five or six technologies are really going to um, transform the way we think about traditional industry. You know, think about the idea of having low-orbit satellite beaming broadband to parts of Africa that don't have access. You can then use the iPhones that get recycled every two years in the Western world because everybody wants a new iPhone. And these iPhones get recycled to these parts of Africa who now have broadband and who are then transacting regular banking services on the blockchain. I mean, the opportunities here are enormous and uncapped and very difficult to size up or to contextualize. So, you know, I think loosely we can categorize the opportunities as being around those six or seven themes. But of course, within them, there are uh, enormous subsectors and, and, and you know, profound, profound change on the way for legacy institutions. And which, in your opinion, um, today offers the most, um, or the one that you find uh, very attractive? Gosh, it's a great question. I think that um, the, the blockchain is still very interesting from the perspective that the acceptance of Bitcoin and blockchain is still very, very different by region. So it doesn't seem too controversial to suggest that in the United States, it's fully mainstreamed now. There's not much controversial when you talk about Bitcoin or crypto or DeFi or NFTs. Um, they've broadly speaking been um, understood and adopted. However, if you were to come to Europe, you know, there are still plenty of people who think Bitcoin's going to go to zero. The mindsets are just extremely different. There's an enormous arbitrage. And of course, in Asia, you've got these enormous markets with some very, very uh, successful blockchain uh, enabled platforms. So that's particularly interesting, not only for the implications of industries that can be um, transformed and improved uh, for the better good of everybody, um, but also because the understanding of this is so different by region. And for me, I think a little bit that, you know, invest in the blockchain, don't invest in the blockchain, but at the very least, you need to understand it because if you don't understand it, you're not going to understand why those shares that you own in some US or European bank are going to halve, and then you'll only have yourself to blame. So I think that's really, really interesting because the information divide and acceptance differences in different continents. I'm also really excited about battery storage because you know if we if we do get this full-on transition to electric mobility which i think is very 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 much underway um, we're going to be living in a, in a cleaner and a quieter world um, and it's really the most obvious way to solve the, the the energy problems that we have the carbon problems that we have the dependencies on on not necessarily friendly states it solves a lot of problems at the same time and again has enormous implications for generally improving standards of living and, and, and health. Yeah. For the blockchain part, um, why in Europe? Is there a, uh, I guess, a kind of reluctance towards it? Gosh, the eternal question. I wish I knew the answer. <laughs> um, you know, what, what we find, you know, we, we run a global business at Antler. We, uh, we operate out of 20 countries um, where we're meeting and, and working and enabling these you know, tremendous, tremendous, uh, women and men founders who are you know, really, really capable people. And you know, we think that's a very exciting proposition in itself. Um, but the, um, the enthusiasm towards venture just differs so much by reason. It's not just the blockchain. You know, if you have a conversation on, on venture capital with European investors, it's a very, very different tone than it would be if you have a conversation 
with US investors or Asian investors where um, people can see at first hand much more vividly how WhatsApp or payment systems or consumption and booking and travel and knowledge has impacted their lives. For some reason, that's more uh, vividly and better uh, understood in these geographies than it is in, in Europe, which that just tends to have a much more conservative mindset uh, when it comes to these um, these conversations. And so you know, time will tell. Like I always think of these things as push and pull. So for the last 10 years, the pull has been, you know, these amazing businesses like Airbnb and Stripe and Uber that have always been built and produced these fabulous, fabulous returns, Tesla et al. Um, of course, a lot of people have participated, even more have not participated, and they sat it out because they felt that it was risky and that they didn't want to be involved uh, at their cost, of course. And that was okay because their existing portfolios and investments were kind of performing just about okay. There was no push. Um, so they could ignore the pool because there was no push. Now there's a very, very meaningful push because bond portfolios are falling apart, cash is being debased. There are air pockets appearing in stock markets and equity markets everywhere. And so you've now got a strong push if you didn't before like the pull. And so time will tell whether or not in the next period, uh, there is a more enthusiastic embrace from European investors of venture. But up until now, the optimism around this asset class just isn't there in the same way that it is in the US or in Asia. Oh, man. Well, hopefully European investors will transition in a way or be more open to it. Yeah, look, I think um, you know there's an enormous amount of benefit not only from the returns that it, that it generates, but the the secondary and tertiary effects of venture are enormous. It creates employment. Um, we've got founders all over the world working on societies difficult, most you know, most tricky and most difficult challenges such as climate change, inequality of access to education, to finance, to healthcare. Um, these are all good things to be working on, and they're good problems to be solving. And they create employment. They create dynamism. Um, we level the playing field with very equal opportunity. We have this deep, deep, deep belief that talent is very broadly distributed, comes in all shapes and sizes, but isn't particularly well served, and that you're as likely to find a great founder uh, who didn't go to university at all as you are from one who did go to university. And in fact, that's been um, demonstrated in the composition of our portfolios where you know, we've got 75 nationalities represented, 40% of our founders are, are, are female. Um, and so there's, there's really positive benefits to venture capital over and above the, the straightforward aspects of trying to generate good returns. Mm -hmm. Can you um, provide some insight into uh, when you do look into these uh, investment opportunities, what you look in a founder and uh, what do you look in that investment as well? You know, we like to use the example a little bit of Brian Chesky at Airbnb where I'm pretty sure that if you'd come to me 10 years ago and said, do you want to rent your spare room to a perfect stranger? Um, I probably would have said no, uh, which of course would have been the wrong decision. Um, but I like to think that I would have met Brian and thought, wow, this guy's really got something about him and I want to stay close to this guy because he's going to make things happen. And you know, for all of the founders that we're privileged enough to work for, what we're trying to solve for through uh, our interaction with them is does that individual have the, the spike or the grit, as we call it, um, maybe more commonly referred to as resilience or tenacity or determination that is required to win and to build a successful business? Because building businesses is hard. And what we're really looking for is people who just find a way to win. They don't know how to fail. They're just going to find a way to succeed 
no matter what obstacle is put in front of them. And so the reason why we spend so much time with the founders is because you can't gauge that from just one or two meetings. You need to see how people operate when they've had a good night's sleep, when they've had a bad night's sleep, when they're in a good mood, when they're in a bad mood. How do they respond to different challenges that they're confronted with? So, of course, we ask ourselves the question, which is, does the project that this person is working on have the potential to scale to a really big outcome? And where does it sit in those six or seven big themes that I talked about earlier? But actually, what we're trying to solve for is the characteristics of those, of those women and men uh, which demonstrate that grit and resilience and spike, which indicates that they will just find a way to win no matter what. Nice. Is there a way to quantify that, our more subjective base? Yeah, so, I mean, you, you know, we're, we're working on this the whole time. So, you know, we're fortunate enough to work with um, you know, many, many thousands of founders around the world every year. And, and of course, we, we, we work very closely with them and we're interested to look at what motivates them, uh, what their backgrounds are, so that we can profile or, or, or more successfully identify successful future founders. And so um, it's probably a little bit early just at the moment to um, draw any material conclusions from the data that we've gathered. But, you know, it won't be very long before we'll be able to say with a reasonable degree of confidence whether good founders did go to university or didn't go to university, whether 32-year-old founders are more successful than 23-year-old founders or whether being able to code is important or it isn't important. You know, we can't tell that definitively yet. And there are, of course, many, many other aspects, um, you know, has this particular founder had too many job changes in the last five years, which might indicate that actually they're quitters? Um, there's lots and lots of different ways that we can uh, draw the data to try and help inform our view as to the profile of successful founders, um, which we're working on you know, constantly to, to, to be able to um, draw some interesting insights from, but it's probably a little bit early just at the moment. But hopefully that gives you a sense of the type of uh, personalities that uh, we, we believe um, uh, succeed and are the best people to work with. And uh, yeah, so just want to know for private companies, uh, what is the end goal? Is it to be publicly traded or remain private? Um, you know, you're, get, you're just going to get so many answers on this. Um, you know, I, you know, it would seem to us that that you know that the, the outcome you're, you're looking to solve for is is um, fully maximizing the potential of the company. And the founder, and that might manifest itself in uh, going public. Um, it might manifest itself in going private. And quite often, the considerations which divide the two choices are based on liquidity. So, obviously, it can take a very little amount of time to build a big company, as we've seen with these great tech successes in the US in the last five to ten years. In other instances, it takes a little bit longer. But people's Individual circumstances change. They might need money. They might need to buy a house. They might need liquidity. They might have all sorts of things that they need to pay attention to. So quite often that decision is based on um, individuals' liquidity requirements at the time and how keen they are to, uh, to, to, to exit. So we equally come across companies that are looking to stay private for longer because they feel that they can do their work more effectively that way and realize their full potential. There are others who are soon to go to clear, sorry, keener to go to market sooner um, for, for other reasons. And so I think there are pluses and minuses to both. Um, 
um, it, it's rather individual by individual. Yeah. And um, so you're just advising them, try to find that best best way out for them, depending on their situation. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we're, we're a young platform, so we're not in the situation where we've confronted an enormous amount of these types of conversations just yet. Um, but of course, when we do get to that stage, you know, one of the benefits of being a large group that we are with uh, privileged access to tremendous business builders and advisors and academics and professors is we can get a, a balanced view on what is the right end outcome and decision for the founder, uh, which is ultimately the most important thing together with the investors. Um, and so when that moment comes, we can we can tap into that broad network of knowledge to, to, to solve for the best outcome. And for in, people who invest in venture capital, um, for the for that investor's timeline, what can they reasonably expect um, when they invest in venture capital? Should they be looking into a ten-year horizon? Yeah, it's a it's a it's it's a it's actually a very important consideration because you know going back to your former question about private equity, uh, whether it's buyout or venture, it's very important that um, um, investors understand the the liquidity implications of that because. If you buy and sell shares in the stock market, obviously you can get up pretty much any time you like, um, weather permitting. So, uh, you know, if you have some uh, money invested in, the, in, a, in a stock market listed company and something happens or you suddenly need that money, uh, you can sell it uh, on the stock market most, most given days. Of course, you can't do that in private equity. So you know, if something happened, if people's personal circumstances change the whole time, suddenly they need that money. Uh, essentially, they, ca- they can't access it if it's in the form of private equity. So they should assume when they make these commitments either to venture or to buyout, they should assume um, that that money is being invested for a 10-year period and they probably won't see it again for 10 years. That's the sort of base case that most private equity funds would guide investors to solve for when they think about how much money they want to commit to private equity strategies. And so, you know, that largely explains why you know, BlackRock, I think, have mentioned that they are recommending a 20% allocation to alternatives. Uh, I think Cambridge Associates are recommending a 15% allocation to venture. It will never be much, much more than that because people's circumstances change. There are liabilities to pay out for big funds. There's fees to be paid if you're an endowment. And so you need to make sure that you have enough liquidity um, to be able to meet those obligations, uh, which therefore tempers and conditions the amount of money that you'll allocate to private equity. So, um, yes, you're absolutely right. You, you know, we we um, guide people to assume a, a ten-year time horizon. And just want to know, what do you see as the future of investing? I mean, you know, the risk of repeating myself and, and, and therefore not doing that. Um, it, it seems, you know, given the sort of four truths that I mentioned at the beginning, it doesn't seem very controversial to propose that we're in a period of absolutely profound and enormous change. Um, And that's going to require an agility of thought, which rather flies in the face of some of the intellectual inertia, which is embedded in these big organizations, where the received wisdom that we've come to know and love over the last 40 years has kind of run its course. And it's time for fresh ideas it's time for fresh thinking. My guess is that in the coming period, it's going to be very difficult to protect your wealth because not only are the prices of filling up your gas tank or buying groceries likely to be going up, you're also probably going to end up paying more tax to pay for defense budgets and investment in infrastructure to reduce dependency on rogue states. 
at the same time that bond markets are coming off all-time highs, cash is being debased, and stock markets are also coming off all-time highs. It's not obvious where you put your money. You know, I put the question to you, which is, if you've got $100 in your pocket right now, what on earth are you going to do with it for the next 10 years? Where are you going to invest it? You're not going to be able to go to the traditional recourses for generating returns because they're just not going to be there. And so I think these are complex questions, which I hope I've been able to shed a little bit of light on, but they affect each and every one of us. And intellectual inertia has never been so dangerous. This is a time for openness, agility of thought as we navigate this new period, which will be very volatile and will feel very uncertain, but within which you know, we think there's a pretty obvious case for investing in innovation, venture, and the future. Nice. And just want to know, um, for future founders, what is your advice to them? I think that, you know, the, the, you know, the, the remarks you often see are, you know, um, stick at it, right? Hold, hold, hold uh, keep moving forward. Um, you know, you're going to go through periods which uh, will, will, will create sh- huge doubt. Um, and there'll be periods when you think you're walking on water, neither of which are true. Um, it will be somewhere in between. But um, if you've got that resilience and tenacity and long-term focus, you'll find a way to get through this. And so, um, you know, if that's your passion and that's your conviction, then stick at it and keep going and keep solving and keep iterating and keep questioning until you find the right outcome. And, um, you know, we'd love to help you on that journey. Nice. And Ed, just wanted to switch over to some personal questions here. What are your favorite books? You know, as I said, I think it's such an incredibly interesting time for learning and, and um, being open-minded because of, because of this period of change which is upon us. And uh, there's a number of books I've read this year which which have resonated with me, which I can share with you briefly. Um, one is one is called The Age of AI, which is written by um, Dr. Henry Kissinger and Eric Schmidt of Google, um, and it makes the point that. You know, we're at a point in humanity where tech has become such a big part of our lives that we outsource so much of our thinking and decision-making to tech, which, of course, is completely counter to the philosophers of the Age of Enlightenment who essentially asserted that to think is to be. And so, you know, a very multi-hundred-year period, you've now got the marriage of two deeply, deeply um, contrasting views on, on what it is to be. And I thought that was a very neat synthesis of um, the danger of outsourcing too much of our decision-making to tech and the dependence that we now have on it um, as it relates to who, who we are as a, as, as, a, as, a, as a people. So that was interesting to me and really well-written. Um, a, a couple of others that stuck with me is the former governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, wrote a book called Values, um, and another book called Morality by, uh, by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. And both of these really explore um, what might be some of the overlooked aspects of humanity in in this period of materiality, consumerism, celebrity worship, and and financialization. Um, And they they really kind of assert that we're living Oscar Wilde's aphorism, which is to know the price of everything and the value of nothing. And so it's a rather grounding, um, very thoughtful uh, call to remind ourselves of, 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 what we are, who we are, what our values are, and to not lose sight of those in a in a in a in a you know in an increasingly tech-driven uh, social media, socially networked world, uh, to remind ourselves of these values. And so, 
Um, you know, so much interesting stuff being written, but th those are sort of two or three of the books which have really stuck out for me recently and, um, and uh, you know, which I can thoroughly recommend. And what are your hobbies? My, my mistress is Antla. <laughs> I don't have time for any hobbies at the moment. So, you know, look, we're very excited about the opportunities of, um, of, uh, of the present time. Um, and, uh, you know, it requires a lot of energy and a lot of focus and a lot of hard work from, from all of our colleagues and all of our, of our tremendous fans that we have the privilege of, of working for. But I think that, you know, my, my kind of sense of um, interest and hobbies, you know, probably the same as lots of other people, which is spending time with friends and family and a bit of sport. But I'm really, really interested in doing anything that makes me look at life differently and helps me learn. Nice. And out of curiosity, um, the name Antler, any uh, reason why uh, you guys chose that? I might be a little bit off on this answer, but I believe Antler is the fastest growing tissue on Earth. Hmm. And we were rather interested in the fact that the letter A comes at the beginning of the alphabet. Perfect. And... Uh... I just wanted to uh, thank you for taking time for the podcast here, um, and thank you for sharing wisdom. Thank you very much. Hello, Value Walk listeners. I want to thank you for your time. If you have any guest recommendations, questions, comments, and feedback, please email me at rpanganaban at valuewalk.com. I would love to hear back from you and appreciate your support. Thank you again.